Welcome to the Crime of the Century podcast, where we expose higher education as a scam that it is. I'm Kevin Prendeville, and I believe that because of what we're teaching our students, we're losing an entire generation. Today, as always, we'll be diving headfirst into controversial subjects, undaunted by political correctness. Now that we've discussed the historical divisions of the West and its religious background, we're going to have to study its philosophical background and where we are now with a focus on the Reformation and the following century. This will eventually help us to decipher the crime of the century. So the Reformation is a period in history which is so pivotal to the development of not only Europe but of the United States and more importantly the West itself. But for whatever reason, the study of it have really been reduced to either advanced history courses or um, or, or even uh, classes that are specifically designed to get people to understand that time period. You know, if some people are going to have a doctorate focused just on Protestant or Catholic theology, you need to know this time period. But for the general public and general understanding of history, especially in the public schools, it is a time period which is basically glossed over. Now I understand in American public schools that you would want US history taught first. We have to understand why our government is. We have to understand why we believe certain things. We have to understand why we're a country. I get all that. In fact, that's the point of this series and eventually getting to how this relates to the crime of the century. But to understand the philosophical background for the United States, for what our founders believed, for what we subscribe to in this nation and what makes us the United States inside these borders, we're going to have to understand the background for that. There's no such thing as a vacuum. Nothing just happens. The founding fathers didn't just think and this great country sprung up. It had a deep religious and philosophical background and that's that's what we're going to go over today. Now we're not going to be able to get to the whole chunk of it today because it's about 210 years of history. It's somewhat in depth to the point where Martin Luther is one of the top 10 people that have had books written about him. Uh, the first one is Jesus, second one is Hitler. What an odd combination. And uh, Martin Luther is down that list. And then it depends on, on country. It's a lot of biographies though. But we're gonna begin really with the uh, Catholic Church's abuses of power. And this, you could start anywhere. You could start in the 700s, you could start in the 1200s, you could start. But for us, we're going to start in uh, the late 1400s, early 1500s. There was, in order to expand uh, the papacy and its power, the church commissioned a, a large um, cathedral 
to be built in St. Petersburg, which at that time was owned by Sweden, but it is now uh, famously the former Russian capital, which is obviously now Moscow, but the Nordic part of Europe has always held St. Petersburg. And it's the most westernized city in the East. Essentially, it's, it's the most modern, it's the most prosperous. Most of Sweden's money at that time, most of the Russian money before the Soviet Union was all centralized in St. Petersburg. It's a very advanced city for the East, very large city. And so, in order to expand uh, the rule of the Catholic Church, which was, especially in Europe, it had throughout the medieval era, the papacy had indirect control of the separate kingdoms. When the Pope called for a crusade, the best knights showed up. This was for land, gold, and God, but also in the sense that the way the medieval world was structured, if you would do something for the church, that would essentially guarantee your place in heaven. And so this grew to the point where the, the Pope, his cardinals, the, the church, I believe, inarguably was corrupted. The Pope had a personal army. The Pope had many wives. This not only is there no justification for the Pope in the Bible at all, but by the church's own theological grounding, the Pope is supposed to be celibate and not supposed to have enough money to fund his own army and wars. Nonetheless, that's exactly what happened. And so in order to expand uh, papacy power, they needed to build this cathedral in St. Petersburg uh, in order to try to convert the mostly Orthodox uh, Russians. And so in order to raise funds for this, the, um, the church essentially came up with this new idea, and this was if you had sinned, if you believed your parents grandparents, cousins, brothers, whoever in your family had died with sin and were not sure if they were going to get into heaven, you could purchase these what are known as indulgences where you'd go and you'd give money to your priest or the archbishop or whatever church you went to and you would give them money and they would essentially sign a document that would let your dead relatives or yourself, essentially it, 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 it relieves them of their sin. And they'll get into heaven no matter what because you gave the church money. There's no grounding for that in the Bible. Let me, let me first say that for those who don't know. There is no thing that can grant your way into heaven except by Jesus Christ. This had, this, these indulgences had nothing to do with Christ or anything, but they were signed, give the church money, and you'll be good to go. The second issue that was in the church was uh, known essentially as uh, nepotism, where relatives of cardinals, people who were friendly with archbishops, people who were friendly with powerful priests, 
would be promoted to positions of power, either in the government of whatever state they were in or uh, within some sort of church body. And these were anything from the nobility to the sons and daughters of what was in the medieval world a pseudo middle class. There was no middle class the way we would think of it, but I'm, I'm talking about like the, the, the people who were above the common laborers, but not quite nobility. But suddenly they would get you know, kind of cushy jobs that were in government, would come out of the state's payroll, but weren't intensive. So all of these complaints among the, uh, the nobility didn't go unnoticed in terms of the, the many of the church, the church's most devout, uh, be they Thomas More or be they Martin Luther, they did not approve of the abuses of power. They were in the church because they believed in a God and a Catholic God but they were there to honor him. They were not there to make money. They were not there to, as they saw it, skimp money off of the poorer classes. And there were some gripes. <laughs> but earlier efforts in the early 1500s to reform the church from within had basically failed. They would get up, there would be enough of a, a, a murmurs within the church to where, again, an archbishop, whether it was in Canterbury or whether it was in, uh, uh, you know, one of the German provinces would come in essentially and say, uh, the Pope says you guys need to stop talking about this or you're going to be excommunicated, which in those days, if you were a heretic, there were people who would kill you. And so if you were excommunicated and were a heretic, that was not, that was a very severe punishment. And so, essentially, these murmurs would come up, but the church authority would stamp them out as soon as possible. Now, I've mentioned his name a couple of times, but Martin Luther, as we set up this problem, was studying to become a lawyer. And he was from uh, a noble family, but kind of a lower nobility family, but enough to go to college. And so he was studying to become a lawyer. Um, and as he was traveling one night uh, across states, uh, the old German states, they ran into a storm. And it was a bad thunderstorm and there was you know, all this rain that was blowing sideways. And, and of course in those days they didn't have a lot of the protections we did. And Luther thought that he might he killed in the in the storm. It was dark. It was obviously no street lights uh, in in the early 1500s. So he gets out and he runs under a tree and he prays to his patron saint uh, Mary and he says, "Mary, if you see me through this, I will no I, I will give up the study of law." And this is obviously a, a redacted quote. I will give up the study of law and I will become a monk. And he makes it through the storm and so he gives up what would have been a decently lucrative position as a lawyer 
and becomes a monk. And this is against his father's wishes, who was notoriously unhappy with him. This is against what his family wanted because there was a lot more money in being a lawyer and they wanted to move up uh, through kind of the Germanic uh, nobility. And Luther believed that he was mandated by God to become a monk. He made a promise to his, his patron saint who rescued him. He was not going to go back on that promise. Luther was a loyal person by all historical accounts that we have. This was in his nature to, if he made a promise, to see it through. Now, before we move on to his solutions to the church and some of the church issues, we need to understand the political mechanics in what we keep mentioning as the German states. Now Germany was not a country as we see it today. The, the Germany would not exist as a unified state until 1871, 300 years after the time period we're talking about. You had all of these little German provinces which had broken up uh, during the medieval era. They had broken off from what was known as the Holy Roman Empire which as Voltaire has commented was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. That's its legacy. The Holy Roman Empire was essentially all these smaller German princes needed uh, protection, most notably from the Franks or the French. And this was in uh, the medieval era. And so they created, and this was based off of Charlemagne's empire, which had included France before it broke off, they created what was known as the Holy Roman Empire, attempting to invoke some sort of, uh, or at least get the populace to believe that they were descendants of Rome. The, after the 1490s, the, uh, the empire didn't even have Rome in its domain. It was not a unified state. You had all of these, it was essentially a coalition of Germanic princes uh, that were once a solidified state that are, have not been for years. And you would have the emperor who'd be, there would be an election every time the emperor died. And you had eight uh, electors. And these eight electors were some of the more powerful states within the empire. And they would vote for a one you know, country's ruler or their heir to be the next emperor. So when the current one dies, um, the that country that would then get to be the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. And that came along with certain privileges. Obviously, they were supposed to defend the empire from any outside force or stop the children from fighting each other, although many times that didn't really uh, work out in the sense that uh, the emperor would show favoritism. And since about the 1400s, the Habsburg uh, rule, who the Habsburgs uh, were still a family, still a noble family in Europe today even, but at this time they controlled uh, Austria. They were, they had controlled Austria for a long time. They even had relatives in Spain and other countries in Europe. They were a very powerful family and they were using the empire essentially just to control or project their power over uh, Central Europe. And so 
when we bring up the Holy Roman Empire, I don't want you to think that it was Roman. I don't want you to think that it was a solidified state. It was more of a, a political mechanic and a idea. So aside from the political mechanics in the Holy Roman Empire, there's a couple rules when you became emperor. You had to be Catholic, it couldn't be a woman, and it had to be a nation that was in the Holy Roman, well, I'm sorry, and you had to uh, be elected by nations that were in the Holy Roman Empire. You could be outside of the empire. Uh, Spain historically eventually became the ruler of the Holy Roman Empire, even though Spain is nowhere close to Germany. But the empire did have uh, issues on in the east. The Ottomans uh, had their dreams of actually reaching the Black Sea and essentially creating a, an Islamic state that went from, uh, I'm sorry, the, the Balkans in the east all the way to the Black Sea. So the Ottomans were stopped uh, in Hungary again and again by the Austrians and other uh, Germanic states that were part of the empire and the this was going on at the time uh, Luther was studying and the uh, empire was beneficial in the sense that they could rally uh, Catholic religiously motivated Germanic states to come to the empire's defense and the uh, Ottomans were stopped at Vienna's gates again and again and eventually uh, Hungary was actually won back over by the empire uh, much later on, about a hundred years after we're talking. So the Holy Roman Empire wasn't for its its faults and its unfortunate uh, eventual demise in the uh, 1810s. It was a surprisingly efficient medieval system that was still functioning in uh, the Renaissance and functioning well for the most part. But Luther is studying in uh, these Germanic territories and he is a man who is committed to his craft. He would spend hours, sometimes days, if he felt that he had sinned he would fast and pray for an entire day he was committed to essentially trying to become a, a perfect monk and follower of the religious theology of the, of the Catholic faith. So you've got the Ottomans attacking the empire from the east. You have within the Holy Roman Empire, you have a uh, essentially a system of coercion. The Habsburgs were essentially bribing and threatening electors to the point where they could get re-elected to keep their dominance over uh, Central Europe. And you have the Catholic Church trying to abuse its power, not trying, abusing its power, and also uh, trying to fund a cathedral in St. Petersburg, which they need money for and therefore are buying indulgences. A lot of times from people who don't already have that much money, they're going to church because that's where everyone goes on Sunday and they are the common man, the common laborer, in many cases underpaid, 
uh, not not really clean, and what they have now they're paying and given to the church in addition to taxation. So while this is going on, Luther is, is studying and he comes to, uh, in the New Testament, Paul's letters. And one of the lines in the Bible in Paul's uh, letters, and I'm not sure if this is uh, Acts or Romans, uh, forgive me on that, but Paul's writing was essentially that you that, that that heaven is a place you get to by justification by faith alone that because of humanity's both original sin and sinful nature there's no amount of good works that you can do to please God to get into heaven now this counteracts the Catholic theology which essentially once you become a Catholic you're meant to do good works and that will eventually get you into heaven Luther said by the blood of Christ and Christ dying on the cross your sin is forgiven and by that you get into heaven and so this also would go against the indulgences practice. This would go against the nepotism. This would go against many of what, much of what the church was teaching at the time. And so Luther comes up with about 95, what are known as the 95 Theses, where he essentially says, these things need to be reformed in the church. Here is why, I, where I found them in the Bible. Here's the justification for these in the scripture and in those days when you had a complaint that you wanted the townsfolk to read and the general public to be aware of you would nail it to the front of the church door so Luther goes and he nails his 95 thesis to the wall or the door and people come by and people read them now they're in Latin as you would address the church in Latin so the crowd got big enough and most of them can't read, but they do know the general uh, vernacular, the German. And so the, in those days you would have a man who would essentially translate things like newspapers and uh, general news stories, these things that would be bulletins essentially that were nailed to the doors of the church. They were translated out of Latin into the German and then tell the public what the papers said. The crowd got so big they actually brought one of these guys in. Now these guys would usually have posts where they would stand so the public would get the news. This is after the printing press of course in the 1440s where uh, someone would print a newspaper, they would hand it to one of these guys, pay him some money, and these guys would go on about telling the public whatever that person wanted them to hear, whatever the newspaper was. So the crowd got so big where everyone wanted to know these theses to the point where, and this was in Saxony at the point in Dresden, and the, it gets to the ears of the archbishop, these complaints. And this archbishop is convinced, not totally, but to the point where he says, 
someone above me needs to hear this. And he goes to the cardinals, and the uh, cardinal that essentially had the most Germanic influence decides that he is going to hold a council with Luther. Not that his claim, because his claims aren't totally unjustified. He's not just some guy that is, you know, putting these complaints on a wall, as in they can't just kill him and get rid of him. These are, these are complaints from someone who has backing. These are complaints that are gaining some ground in Saxony. There's something that needs to be done. And so they have a, uh, a diet. It's known as the Diet of Worms, where essentially uh, the church goes and they discuss these reformations because uh, in the number of uh, uh, complaints that Luther had, you know, one of them was, you know, priests shouldn't have to be celibate. There's no justification for that in scripture. Um, you know, this is, and the Pope has wives. This is, you know, this is ridiculous stipulation, essentially. And also, obviously, some of the more theological uh, groundings that we'll get into. So they call them in. They basically say, okay, Luther, you're a heretic. We've decided you're a heretic. What you're saying is not something that the church is willing to do to reform itself. We will bring you in. We're not going to excommunicate you outright. He did have some friends within the Catholic Church from uh, his days there. Essentially said, we won't outright excommunicate you, nor try to kill you. If you recant now and here in this courtroom, you'll be let go, everything's going to be forgiven, and we'll let you back in to the church. And Luther is a man, as we discussed, of principle. He's a man of loyalty. He believes the church must be reformed on the basis of scripture. And so for all of these reasons, he's giving them, and he's talking, he's speaking in German to a German audience and saying that there is no reason or way for him to recant unless he's convinced by scripture that what he is saying is wrong. And he goes into the many different instances where the church would call council and essentially decide at that council, not based on scripture, but on real politic or, or just among themselves, that this is the way the church would go. And so Luther gives this speech in German, his original speech. And that's not how you address the church. You don't address the church in the vernacular. You address the church in Latin. So the cardinal, though he knew German, asked Luther to repeat his phrase. Essentially, could you repeat it, but in Latin, your speech. And so Luther, exacerbated, but understanding that he must speak in Latin to address the church and to address his grievances, and also knowing that the cardinal is giving him another chance to recant. The cardinal is being nice to him here. The cardinal says uh, to him, you know, if you, essentially, I didn't hear any of that. If you just recant in Latin, it's still all good, even though you gave your speech in German. And so Luther essentially takes a leap of faith here. 
And then Latin, I, I, I printed out his phrase here because it's probably his most famous lines ever spoken, and it is not the creed of, of the Protestant faith, but certainly and much of its ethos. Luther addresses the church here in Latin. Since your most serene majesty and high mightiestness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it's this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council because it is clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If, then, I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture, by cognizant reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text that I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection of God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. And it was at that point where Luther essentially realized he's a heretic, and, and that was exactly what was decided at the Diet of Worms. You're a heretic. Anyone who follows you is a heretic. You're excommunicated. You're out of the church. And Luther goes, and he has two things working in his favor. One, the Holy Roman Empire is distracted by the Ottomans uh, trying to take uh, Vienna and try to push their way through Poland to the Balkans. So the Holy Roman Empire has their professional armies in Hungary attempting to stymie the uh, Ottoman advance. Otherwise, they would have surrounded the courthouse and he would have been dead before he even you know, reached the doors. Now, in the commotion and in the courtroom, he does have one friend, and that's the prince, the uh, essentially the Duke of Saxony. Now, it's very interesting here because in the north, for the Germanic countries that were essentially away from Vienna that didn't always get favor of the emperor, they were looking for a way to undermine the Holy Roman Empire's power. Now remember, inside the empire you had to be Catholic and you had to, you know, not be a woman, which wasn't an issue. Most of the, all of the princes were male. But the Duke of Saxony essentially uh, kidnaps Luther um, outside of the courtroom, puts him on horseback, rides him back as fast as he can back to Saxony. And when the church and the empire essentially just asked him to hand Luther over, he refused. This would eventually spark what became known as the Protestant Reformation. People who wanted to see a reformed church based off of what Luther believed replace the current Catholic model. And the battle lines were drawn, well, I'll cut that. Um, so the battle lines were drawn basically on a political level. You had much of the northern German states go Protestant, not necessarily because they always believed what Luther had to say, but they wanted to undermine the power of the Holy Roman Empire. And now obviously word spread and some of the, much of the populace started to agree with Luther and he wrote many different stories. Unfortunately, some of them uh, 
were very anti-Semitic and were eventually used by the Nazis. Now, we only have to mention that because occasionally um, someone will bring this up with a disgusting Luther, though this is kind of a moot point. The Nazis used many different figures in uh, German lore just to attempt to establish themselves as a legitimate power. But nonetheless, it, it, it does mark uh, this anti-Semitism uh, marks Germany uh, for a long time, really until 1945. And it doesn't end with Luther. And nor do I want you to think that he was some sort of perfect reformer who was persecuted. Uh, he did have his grievances. But through the uh, Schmalkaldic Wars of the 1540s and later of the Thirty Years' War in the 1600s and 1630s, the Protestants and the Catholics notoriously went back and forth, where um, many times the uh, one side would say that um, you know the other attacked them, and there would be you know uh, populaces that would you know sometimes there'd be a Protestant in Catholic France, and he would be hanged, or there would be uh, a Catholic uh, emissaries in a, uh, a Protestant area, and they would throw the emissaries out a window. There were it sparked a period in. Europe of, of religious confusion. But it also marked England. Now, as the Reformation made its way across the Channel in a few years, the English Church, which had, was separate from uh, the Parliament and the King in England, was notoriously um, headed by, not the church, the parliament was notoriously headed by Henry VIII, who, who was the guy with all the wives and he beheaded them because they wouldn't give him a male heir. And then the one male heir they did give died young. And so he was looking essentially for a way to keep marrying wives and getting them annulled. And the Catholic Church kept saying, no, stick with a wife. Uh, this was done as a favor to Spain who was Catholic and very Catholic at that point. And so uh, Henry, looking for a way um, to become uh, free from Catholic rule, essentially decided, well, I'm just going to create my own church and it's going to be based off the Protestant. So while the Germans started their Reformation religious and then it turned political as battle lines were drawn, the English started political and then as Queen Mary and Elizabeth came along after Henry, it turned religious. So the Anglican Church adopted many of the Protestant principles. But they also had uh, in many in, in, in influences from the Dutch. And the Dutch had someone else who started um, a different reformed, what we would consider in the United States to be the Baptist Church, um, which was very influenced by a man named John Calvin. And this is where we get to the crux of this episode before we leave uh, into the next episode. You had your Protestants who were essentially Lutherans, we would call them Lutherans, were very uh, committed to Luther and they had an ethos of individuality that religion should be not enforced by the state but a matter of personal belief. This came from justification by faith alone that just because someone's a pope, it doesn't mean he's going to heaven. It means that 
unless he accepts Christ as his personal Savior, he does not get into heaven, as it's said in the scripture. This marks the faith as being more of a, I need to get into heaven and in an individual way instead of the Catholic, uh, more community-based ethos of doing good works and getting into heaven that way. Also, Luther, one of his uh, grievances with the church, basically Luther advocated that um, the Bible should be printed in the common language of uh, the citizenry. In those days, uh, the Catholic Church only printed Bibles in Latin. You had to know the Latin, and anyone who tried to translate and put it in the ver vernacular, they were uh, killed and executed many times. And this was not because the church just wanted to uh, hold, you know, uh, keep the power, but the church uh, really, they wanted to make sure that, that their theology was solid, that their theological background, and background was understood by the general populace, and so they didn't want all these different translations that might muddle the words or mistranslate words they didn't want them to be distributed all over Europe. So they really put the, the attempted to put the brakes on the printing press, but Luther uh, rejected that and he admitted that it would cause all these different uh, cults to spring up and all these different uh, heretic religions to spring up, but he believed that the general public had the right to know and understand the Bible so that they could come to their own faith and understanding in Christ. And so this individualism marks both the Anglican, what we would call the Baptist or Reformed Church, and Lutheranism. Now, John Calvin was uh, slightly different. He took many from many of his beliefs from the Lutheran Church, but Calvin believed essentially that it was already determined whether or not you would go into heaven, that when God created you, he basically knew whether or not you were going back to heaven. And that was justified by a few different things that you could see in the world. One of them was you would work hard and you were successful. And because you were successful, this meant that you were blessed and therefore going to heaven. And so many of the reform, this would be the, the Netherlands, the Dutch, uh, the Swiss, basically the harder you worked and the more successful you were, the better chance it was that you were going to heaven. That not only were you predetermined on where you would uh, go, but that also essentially if you turned your back on the faith or decided that you know to go in another direction, that was another mark that you weren't going to heaven because if you had faith or were predetermined to have it, you would never lose it. So if you did have it then go the other way, you never truly had it. So this marks the Reformed of the Baptist faith, faith in another sense as being very much centered in hard work and not revolting based off of your circumstance because you know you're getting to heaven if you're blessed and moving up in the world. Now, uh, Luther, to bring to the last topic of today, uh, Luther also believed ardently in free will, and this goes against the Calvinist theory, uh, which says that we don't have free will, 
essentially that everything is by design. Luther said, you have the ability to accept Christ, you have the ability to deny Christ in your life, and therefore you have, by your own will, the right to determine your position on faith. You have the right to, to determine whether or not you're going to heaven. You can't buy your way there. You can't move in the church up to a certain level and essentially guarantee a spot in heaven. Your faith must be by Christ alone and by your ability to reject sin, essentially. And therefore, your free will means that you must have a religious makeup that is freer in the sense that, again, the state itself can't impose a religion or a religious basis. That would be going against human nature, which is the free will to choose that religion. And that is the basis for many of the uh, Northern European uh, faith and theological backgrounds, and noticeably both of these go into the English philosophy. Now as we go into uh, our next uh, topic and our next episode, we're going to look at more so the nature of government, and this comes at us from France, who we pretty much never mentioned. Uh, the French philosophes were beginning to become important um, even more so uh, in the 1500s, but more so in the 1600s uh, with people like Baron uh, de Montesquieu, and we will be getting into the American Revolution before uh, in the next few episodes we discuss more so the crime of the century. All of this is important to understand, however, where our political makeup comes from, why it matters, and why it's a part of the crime of the century. <laughs>